I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to U.S. civics and U.S. history. Today I'm joined by my friend Matt Reeves, who is filling in for Jeff Lopez, my co-host, who will be stepping away for a while. So as we go through each episode going from here on out, uh, it'll be kind of a, um, Matt will be joining me a lot. We'll see who else wants to, you know, sit in for a while. So I'm excited to, to go from here. So I want to introduce Matt and let him tell him, tell you guys a, b- a bit about himself. Hey guys, uh, my name is Matthew Reeves. I uh, went to college with Jake. Uh, we went to Washington State University, Vancouver. I also got a degree in history and a minor in political science. Uh, unlike Jake, though, I, I haven't continued my master's program because I am not up to his level of greatness yet. <laughs> Gosh, but we are getting there. Um, uh, I also have an interest in foreign policy. I focus a lot of my studies on uh, Chinese relations, uh, Chinese history, East Asian policy. Um, uh, but I also focus on a lot of U.S. Uh, foreign policy and U.S. national security studies at Washington State. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much a bit about me. Yeah, so I, I'm excited to have you on because you and I both really share a love for foreign policy, and I think that's um, something that I'm kind of excited to take the show a little bit. For the last, this actually will be our, this coming episode will be our one-year anniversary of To the Republic on, on the radio, so it's, um, I think it's it's kind of an exciting time to take a little bit of a turn from what we're used to. In the past, we've mostly focused on a lot of domestic policies and stuff, and I think now with you and I kind of both having a shared interest in, mm-hmm. in foreign policy, looking at more of how the U.S. Um, U.S.'s role in the world, um, how international relations works. Um, mm. We'll talk about some theories, but I think today we're going to focus on something that's kind of recently in the news, um, and that is uh, Syria. Mm. And it's, um, I think, and we wouldn't be true to, to the Republic if we didn't start by looking at some history. So I think that's where we're where we'll begin for today. Um, just talking about um, Syria uh, in general, um, how Syria became to be as a nation state. Uh, getting into some of the key actors that are at play in the in the conflict that's going on right now, and where we're heading from there. I know you and I have both done some research, so mm-hmm. Syria as we know it, kind of not the nation state early on that it, that it is, we think of yeah. it today. It's kind of like a kind of like a general region, yeah. And the and the French kind of drew the boundaries that yeah. is present day Syria, and that's caused been a main catalyst for a lot of this conflict. Do you mm-hmm. want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, I think we all need to start with a basic understanding of what Syria is. And I kind of got the understanding that it's the greatest game of Jenga ever played. <laughs> Specifically, a lot of individual parts that were conglomerated into an unnatural tower that mm-hmm. we have been trying to pick apart. Or the region's been trying to pick apart for a long time, but yet trying to keep it standing. Um, so if you want to start back, I don't know how far you want to go back, but let's just say, you know, with the uh, the kind of decline of the Ottoman Empire um, moving into the First World War, um, Syria was still a very vital part of the Ottoman Empire's economy because um, Damascus is a very 
was a very wealthy city mm-hmm. um, and, and Aleppo too and Aleppo yeah. too yeah yeah they were part of a very big trade route for well they were part of a huge trade route throughout the Middle East but also were a key economic zones for the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. um, kind of like the lifeblood on the coast um, yeah the whole the, the whole Levant area yeah. is and that's um, south of Turkey so yeah. we're talking what is President Lebanon Syria Israel Palestine yeah. stuff yeah. like that yeah um, I think the other thing we need to talk to about is the division of the Ottoman Empire following the collapse uh, after World War One, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that also kind of puts in trajectory the rest of the region as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Just to, to recap, so the, the Syria was under Ottoman rule starting in 1516 um, after the Mameluk Empire yeah. collapsed, um, well, fell to the Ottomans under Selim I. Yeah. And over time, the Ottoman Empire became a ma- massively expansive Turkish-run mm-hmm. Muslim state. Yes, and it's it, it, it's it, we need to point out though that like ethnically, Turks and Arabs are very different. Even yes. though they both practice Islam, mm-hmm. they're very different ethnically, which yeah. can cause very tense um, ethnic yeah. conflict, especially yeah. when you're talking about fighting over land and yeah. resources. And Syria is also a melting pot of many different ethnic groups, religious groups, and even uh, religious, I guess, splinter groups of Islam. There are many, there's Sufis, Sunnis, Shias, Alawites. I mean, mm-hmm. really, uh, to say that just because it's in the Middle East and it's a, a, Madon- uh, a, a largely Muslim country, um, it means that they're coherent with like Turkey or Iraq or Saudi Arabia would be very foolish to say because it's just you can't paint with that broad of strokes um that's very that's that's a great point so skipping forward a bit to the beginning of the 1900s mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of the 20th century with with war, world war one breaking out in europe the ottoman empire had been in steep decline for several for several centuries we don't need to get into why that declined <laughs> um but over time the the, the landmass that was the ottoman empire that which at one point sp- spread from spain mm-hmm. across north africa and throughout the, the entire middle east and in, even into bumping up against the austro-hungarian empire mm-hmm. so but by the time world war 1 breaks out the ottoman empire had shrunk to a fraction of its yeah. of its size when it was mm-hmm. at its height so the ottoman empire lies itself with germany and mm-hmm. the austro-hungarian empire in world war 1 and when that side lost the the alliance that alliance lost world war 1 the ottoman empire ceased to exist after that point do you want to get into that yeah i think that's important uh specifically with um the carving up of the middle east uh i think if we look at um specifically the levant region ex- itself lebanon israel and syria more in particular um their division was probably some of the more hectic Mm-hmm. following uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire compared to like if, uh, Arabia or even Iraq. Don't get me wrong, those weren't the most peaceful transitions. But Syria, Israel, and Lebanon were specifically difficult because of the differences in ethnic groups, religious groups, and even political interests. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would, for a colonizing uh, empire to come in to try to as the French and the British did after World War Two, after sorry, after World War One, mm-hmm. it, it it was almost an impossible task. Yeah. And wouldn't in one you can even it's like morally not even correct. But we're yeah we're not here to make a moral judgment. We're just kind of talking yeah. about the history of it. So starting in actually 1915, the, uh, the the French and the British began to kind of on a map carve up what would be the Ottoman Empire after after yeah it, well, after they yeah. supposedly after yeah. they had won World War One how the Ottoman Empire was going to be divvied up and those lands would be basically given to the British and the French. Mm-hmm. And, the, and Syria and Lebanon were 
became part of what was known as the French Mandate. Yes. So they were basically giving colonial rule mm-hmm. over that land after World War One. Yes. And that was really contested because of an agreement that was made by between the French and the British government with the uh, the Arab population, who, as we talked about earlier, Arabs and Turks are ethnically different, and mm-hmm. being under Turkish rule, the Arabs wanted independence. Yes. Uh, the British and the French used that as leverage, told the, the Arab populations within Saudi Arabia and the Levant that if you fight and undermine the Ottoman Empire from within, when you when we win World War One, we'll give you an independent Arab state. Yeah, and this kind of ties into the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, mm-hmm. which was essentially dividing the Middle East between the French and British um, spheres of influence. Yeah. Um, obviously... Syria was kind of the uh, Rubik's Cube of the Middle East where there was a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different pieces trying to make up a nation state that really was, it's hard to say unnatural because nation states aren't, you know, like trees. They don't like just grow out of nowhere. But Mm -hmm. um, this is really a Frankenstein-esque project trying to piece together this nation state and and have it be a thriving state. It really was kind of off to shaky starts. Well, yeah, I mean, you you have... Europe, the European mindset of the nation state, right? Like yeah. we, that was something, you know, nationalism, the nation state drawn borders. This is, this is, this is France. This is England, right? That was a very, that was a very Western mm-hmm. idea and trying to, uh, tr- trying to take that idea and putting these really rigid borders across a, a, a land that had never really outside of the Ottoman empire probably, and weren't probably really willing to really accept that. Either. Yeah. It was definitely a, it was, I mean, it was at the height of imperialism yes. at that time. So yeah. it, it, uh, it was came fraught with, with challenges. And I also think the important thing to look at Syria too, um, is to see how directly after the Sykes-Picot agreement, the nation state already started to sh- so show signs of a uh, crumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, they rejected French colonial rule pretty quickly on um, yes. because they saw the leader of the Syrian state as just a puppet for the French. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so uh, I think we should also mention about the several coups that started off right from the beginning because they're pretty fun. Well, so after um, so after World War II, France under the United Nations mm-hmm. Charter uh, gave up its colonial holdings. Yeah. So Syria gained independence yeah. in 1946. Yeah. But they kept the, the, the borders that were drawn mm. by the French, which encompassed all sorts of ethnic groups, as we yeah. had talked about. So it was trying to take people who don't really have ties that bind them together, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden saying, hey, you guys are now got to form a government together. And how do you go about even trying to do that? Who is, you know, we were talking in our, in our uh, episode, me and Jeff were talking about our episode last month about democratic structures. How do you go about you know, devising a government with people who, with people from all different, you know, walks of life and different, you know, beliefs and values. Mm-hmm. And how do you go about picking uh, who's going to have power? What are the power structures? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you form, you know, forming that government is very, very difficult. Yeah. And that can cause tensions when mm-hmm. you have, um, when you have people with such differences. Yeah. So it, that, um, that kind of gets in, you know, the, the, the Sykes-Picot agreement um, really left a, a, a lasting legacy mm-hmm. on, on this, on this region. Yeah. And I also think it's important to, uh, focus too on how uh, a lot of the groups within Syria had a lot of tribal ties, um, specifically the Arab groups did. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them formed identities with groups that they identified with ethnic, uh, ethnically uh, more than just religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, because even like, like for example, the Kurds um, who are in more northern Syria, 
um, are Sunni Muslims, which is very similar to most Arab um, uh, Syrians yeah. uh, who are also uh, mm-hmm. majority uh, uh, Sunni Muslims, but they actually don't necessarily flock to their causes just because they are both Sunni Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, um, I guess, uh, for a lack of better words, there's a a, a big uh, di- uh, disconnect between ethnic groups within Syria because they don't identify as a common peoples. They view each other kind of as like a group that was forced into one room together and told to have a party, but really <laughs> no one wanted to that's party. A good way, that's a really good way to put it. A very academic way, I would yeah. say. <laughs> so over time, we have, uh, so the Sunni majority, um, 90% of what is what is considered today Syria, which, you know, the borders mm-hmm. that the French and the British drew, is still the for the most part, the borders that Syria holds today. And 90% of Syria's population mm-hmm. is, is Arab, but it has um, very powerful very powerful minority groups within mm-hmm. the country. Like we mentioned the Kurds. Um, there's the Assyrians, which would be like the ancient people yeah. from ancient Syria. And then there's also uh, about 1 million Turkish, ethnically Turkish mm-hmm. people within uh, within Syria. So and there's also a, a, an important group of uh, uh, Persians uh, within Syria, um, which is uh, the neighbor to Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as a significant minority group um, as compared to like the Turks or um, the Kurds, but they're still a, a, an important one because it also ties Iran um, kind of as a, as a um, I guess... A neighbor who has more ethnic ties to the um, state of Syria, um, and, and, and is important one to kind of foreshadow, I guess. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's important to p- uh, point out. So yeah, after end of, uh, Syria gains independence, the the Sunni majority quickly takes power in in Syria, and over time there is. The ties that bound them together under French rule, which was nationalism mm-hmm. and wanting to gain Syrian independence, broke down as soon as the French left yeah. because there wasn't anything else really holding these groups together. No. So you had competing interests and yeah. secession of cu- of coups mm-hmm. between uh, the Sunni leadership, especially in the military. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of instability early on in Syria's, mm-hmm. um, Syria's founding. Yeah. yeah, and I also think... Uh one thing to point out was each group saw the other as an occupying force. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kurds of the North thought they should be their own independent state. Uh, a lot of the Shias and uh, in, in more of Eastern Syria and Southern Syria believe they also should be more independent. Um, the Sunni Arabs believed that they were the rightful um, rulers because they were the majority. Um, it really, each one after the French left viewed the other as kind of the role of the French in their own way. Definitely. And there was a lot of tension I was reading between um, what even nationalism was supposed to look like in Syria. So was it supposed to be a Syrian nationalism where like, you know, we're Syrian first, or there was like, there was uh, pushes for pan-Arabism, which uh, would kind of tear down the borders Mm -hmm. between these Arab states and create one big caliphate. And how... And differences on on that idea drove wedges politically between these between these different groups. So mm-hmm. um, definitely fraught early, and that kind of opened the door for the for the Assad regime yes. to take over. Yeah. You want to? Did you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, no, we definitely should um, because the Assad regime didn't start with Bashar. Um, it started with his father, mm-hmm. um, and I always butcher his name, um, but we'll just call him Papa Assad because it'll help <laughs> okay. us all kind of understand him. <laughs> all right, um, but uh, Pops Assad. Uh, was uh, essentially he led a successful coup against the previous uh, government, and uh, more importantly, he is also part of one of these fun uh, Jenga pieces of Syria called the well, specifically of a faith group called the Alawites. Mm-hmm. Um, the Alawites are a very interesting group in themselves. They are kind of a offshoot of Shia Islam, mm-hmm. but a majority of 
um, Muslims don't view them as Muslims. They yeah. view them as kind of apostates. Um, like, for example, like they actually celebrate Christmas, which is something that almost 99% okay. of Muslims don't do. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're um, very, they're, they're, I think they're also very similar to Sufis in a way that they're much more into like Islamic mysticism. Okay. In certain in certain aspects, not in general, like not as similar to Sufism, mm-hmm. but but they're kind of on a similar trajectory. Sure. Okay. Um, but again, that's really neither here nor there. Just to know that um, uh, uh, Papa Assad uh, came from a minority group um, in the Alawites, who are about like ten. No, not ten percent. I think what are they? Ten percent of, of Syrian population. They're around there. Yeah. 10, it's a, it's yeah. a it's a small portion. Yeah. Um, and they they became they came to power slowly throughout yeah. Syria as the French in their in a, a, a sad but effective colonial strategy that both the French and the and the uh, British used throughout their colonial holdings, which was a divide and yeah. rule strategy. And they would pit, they would purposefully pit these ethnic ethnic groups against each other within the bureaucratic structures mm-hmm. of, of their, of their colonies. And, um, they recruited significant po- proportions of Alawites for the, uh, Syrian mil- for the Syrian colonial military. And once the French left this, uh, the Alawites held really powerful and majority positions within the military. And after success, a series of coups, eventually um, the Alawites came to power mm-hmm. and that's how the Assad regime yeah, in, in a very, we're definitely con- yeah. condensing. There's a lot of history between this, but essentially mm-hmm. over time due to uh, early French colonial policies, the Alawites who are a vast minor- minority group came to power and rule over the majority of uh, Sunni Muslims. Yeah, and just to also let you guys know what Bashar al-Assad's father's name is, it's Hafez, but I always want to say Haifez, and I don't want to screw it up, but just so you guys know who he actually is, it's okay. Hafez al-Assad. Okay, um, good to know. Yeah, uh, yeah, but also he was part of a very interesting group. Um, it was kind of an Arab socialist party. Okay. Um, they were uh, um, uh, part of a kind of branch that, again, it kind of ties into nationalism more than I would say like socialism as we see is like marxism or stalinism or, or something like that sure. uh, that word i think in this case may be misplaced well we we have connotations here in the united states about what that means but yeah in internationally that it, it can mean a lot of different things it can material it can materialize in a lot of different ways yeah and essentially it his group toppled the Ba'athist party mm-hmm. in in Syria, which you may remember that name um, from like Iraq with yeah. uh, Saddam Hussein's yeah. uh, Ba'athist rise. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a similar um, uh, party that was toppled by um, Assad's father, who then ruled um, pretty iron fistedly for most of his rule. I would argue though that. Um, a lot of what he was focusing on was kind of trying to form a state that would function, mm-hmm. but he also implemented a lot of laws um, that were very um, uh, discriminatory to the Sunni majority um, uh, population and privileged a lot of Alawites um, over uh, the yeah over, over the, the Sunnis, the Sunni majority, yeah, um, and that has created a lot of tension. And which is what we'll get into next is the Syrian civil war. Yeah what has brought the United States yeah. into this um, into this conflict and kind of where we're going to go from there. So yeah. at this point, I think we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. We'd like to thank you for listening and we'll be right back. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. 
They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Welcome back to To The Republic. In our last segment, we, we discussed uh, the early history of Syria um, through French colonialism. And now I think we're going to talk about the Syrian civil war. So uh, if you want to take it from here. Yeah. So um, I think uh, where we need to kind of continue off of is um, what led up to the Syrian civil war. Um, a lot of Syrians weren't particularly happy. Um, as you can guess, uh, with the Assad regime. And after um, uh, Hafez uh, al-Assad uh, ended his rule, he tra- uh, the transition of power went to his son Bashar al-Assad, the current um, leader of Syria, um, or at least arguably the current leader of the winning government mm-hmm. of uh, what we can now see as the modern civil war. But um, looking at uh, what led to the civil war in general was the uh, Arab Spring that we all saw um, in the early 2010s, um, uh, and a, a kind of popular revolution against um, more despotic regimes in the region. Sure. I think another important thing to talk about is um, what happened on the ground that led to the civil war. There was a lot of popular uprisings um, in places like uh, Damascus, um, Aleppo, um, all over Syria. Um, a lot a lot of the really um, urban areas. Yeah, a lot of the urban yeah. areas. And this, and this was, sorry to cut you off, this was, this was happening all over the, all over the Arab world. Yes. With yes. Um, all what was called Arab Spring. Yes. This yes. happened in Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, yeah. um, a little bit in Saudi Arabia, although yeah. it's a little different. The Saud uh, regime uh, crushed that pretty early. Yeah. Um, even in, uh, even Iran saw yeah. that as a, a bit too. Even so, though they're not Arab, but. Yeah, not, not the Arab yeah. world, but yeah, sorry. The, the larger the, uh, Muslim the, world. The Muslim world, okay. more, more broadly. Yeah. Um, and I also think Assad's response to this uprising was less than um, pleased by the uh, revolting masses because he largely had his soldiers, again, mainly Alawite soldiers, Mm -hmm. um, fire upon uh, uh, members of the public, shoot tear gas at them, even started to use some chemical weapons like mustard gas and and, and other uh, terrible against his own people. Um, And then the situation pretty quickly collapsed and led into groups like Al-Qaeda moving in. Um, Hezbollah, um, other uh, groups, um, some backed by other powers, um, cutting into Syria and trying to carve out um, uh, factions to fight the Assad regime. Um, While Assad tried to keep his main base in Damascus under, again, his largely um, uh, Alawite um, controlled military. Yeah, so um, so over time you have this uh, factionalization of, of Syria. The situation deteriorated. Uh, as they look to overthrow the Assad regime, but competing interests, different ethnic groups, like we we've seen throughout Syria's uh, throughout Syria's history, led to you know a power vacuum that 
let you know fundamental uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups like Al Qaeda, the creation of ISIS, um, all competing for for land grabs was in Syria as the Assad regime was forced to pull back. Yeah. Um, early on, the Obama administration looked at this situation as 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 a humanitarian crisis, which it was, and we saw millions of Syrians fleeing. Uh, the country looking for refuge. And it, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, there has been a tremendous amount of, of death and suffering in that due to um, Bashar al-Assad's you know, brutal, brutal regime. And, you know, you know, famously, we have the Obama administration's red line where, you know, they, he would, where they said, you know, we would, you'll not use chemical weapons or there'll be a response. Well, Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons and the United States, you know, has had a limited uh, response to the uh, Assad regime, but ma- the majority of our presence in that country has been to con- to combat ISIS. Yeah, and also um, as a result of the Syrian civil war, about uh, six million uh, Syrians are internally displaced. All of them flocking to now largely um, Assad-controlled parts of Syria because mm-hmm. they're more um, uh, protected. Yeah, a little from, more, st- a little more, more stable yeah. because of a presence of a government and, yeah. and a military, regardless of, I guess, how awful that. Yeah, and by no means is that me saying that you know Assad is a benevolent leader and protecting. <laughs> I'm just saying, and that that like a lot of them tend to flock to Damascus, for mm-hmm. example. Um, another uh, five million have actually been um, uh, displaced around the world. Um, a lot of them seeking as- asylum. Um, not necessarily. A lot of people think it's mainly in Europe, but it's actually a majority of them are in Turkey, uh, Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, some of the numbers uh, there are about three million six hundred fourteen thousand uh, refugees in Turkey, um, and about nine hundred thousand in uh, Lebanon and about another 662,000 in Jordan. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, populations of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I mean, 3 million in Turkey, that's bigger than a lot of European countries itself, like Estonia or, you know. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. if you think about the just the humanitarian crisis that that is, it's one of the largest in the world, if not yeah. the largest in the yeah. world. And with the, the, the loss of infrastructure mm-hmm. and being able to get much needed uh, resources to mm-hmm. these groups of people uh, has been incredibly tough for the UN yeah. and a lot of other international organizations, mm-hmm. a lot of NGOs that are working to to try to uh, stabilize as much as they can mm-hmm. this this situation. But that kind of gets us up to a little bit of modern times. Yeah, but I think we should also circle back to who is fighting in the Syrian civil war. All right, let's do it. Um, one, we obviously have the Assad regime. Um, they are the essentially, uh, I, I don't know if the right word would be to say like the Golden State Warriors and that, not that they're a championship team, but they are the current ring bearers. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they hold the ring of power. Not necessarily in a good way. They're not benevolent, but they hold the ring. Well, yeah, because I mean, the, the international system is set up to recognize the nation state as the, as the key actor and he currently, the Assad regime holds the capital Which of, is the, the of, ring. of that nation state. I'm doubling down on the ring, man. All right, let's go. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, but they're, uh, again, the uh, they are the ones who had control of the state of Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also um, groups like ISIS, who originally started with uh, as Al-Qaeda. Um, I think they were once part of the, uh, there, was a, there was several groups of, uh, like, splinter groups of Al-Qaeda in Syria, and they kind of conglomerated into ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, which stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It's also called ISIL, but no one picked up on that because it doesn't sound as good, I guess. It was uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, the Levant being, yeah. like we mentioned, Lebanon, Israel, Syria, um, you know, uh, parts of Turkey, um, I think parts of Iraq too. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- ISIS became probably the most 
dominant in the region for a time because they were some of the most brutal and violent. And I'm sure you guys have seen on, on the news and, and out there in papers about the horrific things they've done. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing they also bring up is they also provided a lot of services to a lot of the outlying regions that um, the Assad regime kind of neglected, uh, specifically to some of the minority groups that we saw, um, like the Shia populations. Um, not necessarily because they like the Shia, but there was mainly like small uh, Sunni Arab groups um, mm-hmm. there as well. Um, so they provide like electricity and um, like doctor's offices and we're giving them another option instead of the Assad regime and some people flock to their cause um, in, in, inside Syria. Um, there's also the Kurds um, up north who uh, have always had a kind of difficult um, time finding a voice in the region, mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it's in northern Iraq, northern Syria, or eastern Turkey, um, they've always been kind of suppressed. But in, they, West, yeah. in western Iran, in western Iran, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, they're kind of a group without a state. Um, yeah, similar to how like the Jews in Europe were a group without a state, mm-hmm. um, and, and during the Second World War and, and prior to the Second World War, but yeah, exactly. And, and until they were given, in touching back on, it, we we keep bumping up against mm-hmm. international norms, and that yeah. is you know, the nation state is the key actor. If you have a flag, you have land. If you have mm-hmm. land, you have a flag, and if you have a flag, you have representation. Yeah. And the the Kurds have consistently not had representation because they have a flag, but they don't have land. Yes, and that's been one of the major sort of one of the the biggest sticking points in that region is Kurds want independence. Mm-hmm. They want they want to have their own nation state of mm-hmm. Kurdistan. Yeah. And unfortunately, when when the region was carved up by the British and the French after World War One, as part of the uh, the Sykes Picot Agreement, the Kurds, the population of the Kurds, ended up in four different countries. And the reason also is because the Kurds historically are norma- uh, nomadic people. Mm-hmm. Um, they never really have had like a nation state per se, but they all come from a common ethnic group and religious group. Mm-hmm. And so they got kind of divided up between majority wise Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. There are some in Iran, some other uh, other areas around the Middle East, but the majority are in. Uh, Iraq, Syria, and um, Turkey. Um, the big problem also is because Turkey being a NATO ally, they do not like the Kurds um, because there's uh, some groups within Turkey mm-hmm. who are separatists and who have launched um, what the Turks consider terrorist attacks. Well, um, a lot of the um, international community also consider terrorist attacks to try yeah, to the, form a breakaway state. The U.S. Congress formally considered several years ago the PKK. Yeah, you're the, referring to the PKK. Yes. Uh, which is a um, Turkish... Unionist Party, mm-hmm. and they, like you said, they're separatists, and they're fighting hard for a a carve out of Turkey mm-hmm. that would become an independent state. Yes, and Turkey viewing, you know, land is incredibly important in international yeah. relations, and yeah. so yeah, as so, and Turkey has pushed back against um, any sort of Kurdish nationalism. Yeah, and uh, it is also similar in Iraq to um, uh, Saddam Hussein also um, brutalized the the Kurds in, in northern Iraq. Um, until the U.S. coalition-led um, invasion, um, uh, where we actually uh, partnered with the Kurds mm-hmm. um, heavily, and, and and in Syria, the U.S. has also backed the Kurds in fighting ISIS, um, and and a lot of terrorist organizations that try to gain foothold in, in in that region. Yeah, definitely, and the the Kurds have been an outstanding ally for they us in the, been, in the region. Yeah. Um, and the the YPG, I think, is the name of the group that uh, we. Yeah, they we are have. the Syrian. Um, uh, the Syrian wing of kind of the, P- I wouldn't say they're very, like the same as the PKK, but they're they're the Syrian arm of the Kurdish movement for an independent state in Syria. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're they're situated along the northern border of Syria, mm-hmm. um, in Turkey. Yeah. And Turkey has long maintained that this group of Syrian Kurds is aligned with the 
with the militant PKK. And is a terrorist organization. And which is a which is considered a terrorist organization. They linked them together, yeah. Turkey, nobody else has, but Turkey has. No, but Turkey has. Sorry, and yeah, Turkey um, has. they they don't want the YPG to be on the directly on the border of of of, of Turkey. Of, oh, of, of Turkey, of, yeah, of, Turkey, of Turkey. Sorry, yeah. and yeah. so that is why um, Turkey has launched had launched an incursion into mm. into northern Syria to push back that group of Kurds yeah. off of their border because mm-hmm. they felt like the YPG could either um, mm. assist militarily with the PKK mm. or be um, moving in re- yeah. you know military resources. Yeah, and the, I think Turkey also sees the threat of the Kurds because of how effective they were on the ground against ISIS. I mean, without the Kurds, Syria would have fallen. Um, at least uh, northern Syria and and uh, uh, northern Iraq would well, have fallen. Or more, especially more U.S. troops would have had to been used. In, yeah, in, uh, that's in, yeah. It's, yeah. Kurd, the Kurds did a lot of the heavy lifting for the United yeah. States in our war against yeah. ISIS. And uh, I think it's also fair to point out that uh, with the Assad regime, they were backed heavily by Russia. Um, Russia kind of saved Bashar al-Assad from collapsing. Yeah, um, and, why, and why is that? Uh, well, if you know anything about Russia, it's cold up north. <laughs> it's, it it's, is. It's the it land is, of always winter and it's sadness. A, it's a bit chilly. Um, and what they desperately want is what every great empire desperately wants, warm water ports um, and a friendly regime in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can give them that, that warm can water give them port. That warm water port. Um, Putin himself has met with Bashar al-Assad on a, I mean, several times. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's been on a, pr- a pretty continuing basis um, since uh, even before the, the uh, uh, breakout of the Syrian civil war. Um, but uh, he backed heavily Assad and using Russian airstrikes and even Russian commandos at times mm-hmm. um, really helped um, keep ISIS at bay and even the Kurds yeah. um, at bay um, from pushing into Damascus. Yeah. Because um, if, I mean, ISIS was marching on the door to Damascus at one point um, and it really had taken huge, huge swaths of, uh, of um, Syria or as, as some say, huge swatches of Syria. Um that was a pun. Something that our dear <laughs> commander in chief said once. Um, but uh, and also they were taking huge parts of Iraq, um, and and with uh, luckily um, the Kurds really contained um, ISIS on the ground and, and and were really the most effective force um, to fight them. But uh, it was kind of they were stuck between a rock and a hard place because they were fighting ISIS on one end and the Assad regime in Russia on the other. Yeah. Um, so they were really in a vice grip. And now um, with the Syrian civil war kind of decline or at least winding down to kind of the final battles um uh, the assad regime has t- virtually taken back almost all of its territory that lost to isis mm-hmm. um and now the kurds are pinched between now an aggressive turkey who's launched an incursion in northern syria and the assad regime who is now trying to take back what is what they see as rightfully theirs in syria mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's definitely interesting because now that now the kurds have aligned themselves out of necessity with, yeah, the, assad with the assad regime, regime. Yeah. yeah and um in Russia, but Russia is kind of playing both sides of the fence here. They're they're aligning themselves with President uh, Erdogan of Turkey and Bashar al-Assad of, of Syria. And why is that? Why is it that he wants uh, Russia specifically? Not he as Russia being a, a person, but Putin well, and Russia want. You can really kind of argue that Putin Putin and Russia are almost one and the same. Uh, with, with, At least with the foreign affairs. With foreign affairs, and and because Putin, in a lot of ways, wants to see uh, R- Russia restored to its former. Um, 
glory under the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and it wants to have it wants to be a player again on the international stage. And there's no greater um, there's no greater avenue towards that than the st- than filling in a power vacuum in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And Russia has Russia is willing to to fill that role, and they're going to they potentially could see a windfall of, of benefits mm-hmm. from gaining becoming the kingmaker in yeah. that region yeah pulling the strings uh the, like we mentioned the warm water port in syria that gives them direct mil, um, naval access mm-hmm. to the mediterranean yeah. um to push back against the nato alliance you know mm-hmm. to build buffer zones against the nato alliance mm-hmm. oil reserves mm-hmm. um in, in turkey and syria yeah. so it 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 greatly behooves president putin and the russians to expand their their role in that region yeah and so i i think also um it's important to look at um, the U.S. withdrawal. Um, specifically, you may have heard in the news um, uh, that the U.S. withdrew um, a majority of its troops um, that they had in Syria um, out, which mm-hmm. now kind of gives the Turks free reign in the region and Assad as well. Um, so, uh, I mean, Assad wasn't as worried about the U.S. troops, per se, yeah. um, but uh, the Turks were because mm-hmm. it kind of gave a buffer um, to the Kurds because the Cur- the Turks are NATO allies yeah. and so they couldn't like just attack a city where U.S. troops were or or bases where U.S. troops were because you're attacking a NATO ally for sure. Well, and, and nobody's going to attack well, no, a yeah, city where there's U.S. troops. Yeah, held that's foolish because you you would incur the wrath of the U.S. military. So ha- no matter how many U.S. troops were there, it was it was keeping it was a, acting as a stability of force until. Mm more in, until diplomatic solutions could be could be made if they're even mm-hmm. on the if they're even really even on the board and another question i would like to ask um was this uh withdrawal of u.s troops planned or was it more spontaneous on the um part of the uh, trump administration from my from my reading it seems to be very spontaneous mm-hmm. it was um this president uh this president looks at international relations foreign affairs and as a transactional basis mm-hmm. and he he looks at every single um situation on a transactional basis in uh, almost as an ad hoc mm-hmm. um ad hoc agreements and doesn't want any long-standing alliances and he's going to move on his instincts on any particular situation that arises and that's just kind of how he has formulated his foreign policy it, it's very it stands in stark contrast to what we've become used to of u.s foreign policy over the last 70 years but that is that's where we're at right now so just kind of summarize again really um there was multiple again with the syrian war there was multiple groups trying to vie for power um major powers backed specific groups in russia uh backing the assad regime and the alawites mm-hmm. with the u.s backing the kurds um there was also iran backing some hezbollah fighters um and shia uh, separatist groups um but they weren't as significant um and then of course um we have the largely arab majority population being backed by groups like the saudis um, as well um but really it's come down to um assad now forming a relationship with the kurds and the turks invading um to get this the kurds off of the border with um turkey yeah um so that's kind of where we're at um in the current affairs and then obviously the u.s withdrawing um its su- troops and essentially its support from the kurds mm-hmm. yeah so uh that's a great wrap-up of this segment i think when we come back we're going to talk a bit about future trajectories we're going to hear from our sponsors uh you've been listening to, to the republic i am jake and i'm matt and we'll be right back 
KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvamsterdam.com. That's newvamsterdam.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-chao.com or directly at 360-210-5522. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked about the Syrian Civil War and um, U.S. involvement, key actors in that region, and now we're going to talk about where we're heading from here. Mm-hmm. The, the U.S. has withdrawn its its presence from the region for the most part. It's still guarding some some oil uh, facilities in this more yeah. of the center of the, of the of the nation, but for the most part, the U.S. has taken a step back. Uh, the stated purpose of that by the administration is that. They're going to let regional actors handle regional problems. Mm. And that is by far a stark, I mentioned this in the last segment, by far a a stark contrast Mm. to what has been U.S. foreign policy, especially in the post-Cold War era, is that we're going to be, uh, the U.S. is um, more on a kind of a primacy foreign doctrine, a threat to peace anywhere, it's a threat to peace everywhere. Mm. And this, as far as doctrines go, uh, this president is kind of bordering on neo-isolationism, selective engagement. We can get into those definitions if we want, but it's basically unless it, it threatens the, the major stability structurally of internet of international relations, as long as it doesn't threaten peace between the major powers, the U.S. is probably not going to get itself involved. Correct. So where do you see this situation going from here? Personally, I see it very similar to how I've been observing um, with like Chinese foreign policy and with the Belt and Road Initiative. Okay. I think this will be more of an area for Russia to advance, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, with the U.S. withdrawing, I think we're leaving a huge vacuum for foreign power. Not even just foreign powers, just more regional powers to gain um, stronger hands. I think Iran really wants to make a push into Syria and with at least some of the Shia groups. Um, I don't think they'll be as effective as, say... Um, uh, Russia is with the Assad regime. Um, but I also think it's important to look at what's happening in Turkey with um, President Erdogan. Uh, I think U.S. relations with Turkey are probably at one of its lowest points it's been since 9-11. Turkey, um, Turkey understands its geopolitical uh, worth Yeah, in terms of where it's situated in the world mm-hmm. has massive ramifications mm-hmm. in terms of who it allies with and how major actors balance against each other. Turkey yes. was a major player in the world in, in, uh, in the cold war. Yeah. Without, without uh, Turkey becoming a NATO alliance, it, it would be, it's, it'd be, it was much, anyway, it was much easier for the United States to put pressure on, um, on Moscow mm-hmm. Than it would be have had been if the roles had been reversed, and it seems like those rules are trying to be reversed by Russia. Um, 
Turkish-Russian relations, I'd actually say are at some of their best. Um, there was some flux with it when the Turks shot down a Russian uh, fighter jet mm-hmm. um, that was in Syrian airspace that the Turks argued was in Turkish airspace. Um, and uh, But I think overall, Turkish-Russian relations might be at some of its best it's ever been, um, at least in its history. Um, well, Russia is doing a lot of what the United States has done to potential allies. It's, yeah. it's helped with development. Russia is um, is kind of you know, bankrolling development projects in Turkey. Um, it's uh, promising, potentially, uh, there's been whispers that uh, the Russians are planning on um, giving uh, Turkey nuclear waste which would allow them to start a nuclear project mm-hmm. within within turkey within turkey mm-hmm. um whether that ends up happening or not that could that's in violation of many international yeah, laws which may be subject um, for another episode <laughs> for sure uh so it, it's uh turkey is a, is a major regional player and the united states is bent over backwards on a lot of at a lot of a lot of instances to try to maintain that relationship but i yeah. think it's definitely becoming more and more frayed mm-hmm. uh as time goes along and that's precarious for the United States because, mm-hmm. as we n- mentioned, Turkey's a NATO, a NATO ally. And what does that mean? Well, mm-hmm. most importantly, it means that if Article in, – in how it relates in the context of Article 5. Do you want to talk about Article 5? Yeah, of course. Uh, Article 5 essentially is an attack on – one is an attack on all. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I think the – wasn't the only time it was in, uh, invoked on 9-11? Yeah. And so essentially – Yeah. Essentially, what that means is that you have uh, the uh, members of NATO will uh, come to the aid of the country that has been attacked, um, either militarily or financially, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, essentially support that nation um, during the um, uh, incident in which the article is evoked. Correct. Um, And so Turkey was a part of it when we um, were attacked during 9-11, and we uh, launched our invasions into Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, And uh, I think it's going to put it in a very weird place now that Turkey's kind of shifting its... Um, focus on uh, building a stronger alliance with Russia, which um, is historically its, NATO's biggest. biggest and um, it was enemy. the reason, really, the reason why it was why was NATO was f- the, the you know the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed in response to the rising Russian threat at yeah. the end of World War II. And the Eastern Bloc, yeah, yeah, and NATO politically, NATO works um, on consensus, and that means that any decision that NATO makes is. Um, is has to be unanimous. So as if one member is becoming cozy with an, if further expanding Russia, that poses a very real risk to the very nature mm-hmm. and structure and effectiveness, readiness yeah. of, of NATO. And it makes me wonder if under the Erdogan regime, if Turkey may leave NATO. They may leave or NATO might expel them. Expel them, yeah. Um, I think that's becoming a very real possibility. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard many arguments of saying, well, what uh, what the president has done um, with in regards to the Kurds? You know, what was he going to do? Choose the Kurds over a NATO ally? Yeah. If the NATO ally is acting in such a negative way, I think we need to. I personally, I believe we need to revisit. You know, we mm-hmm. have we need to revisit. Um, you know what it means to be a, mm-hmm. a, a, a NATO alliance member. Yeah, I agree because at one point, um, Turkey was even seeing to try to get a part of um, to be a part of the European Union. Yeah. Um. Uh. Prior to um, a lot of the um, current uh, trajectories of uh, Turkish foreign policy, mm-hmm. uh, I think it is um, also important to look at maybe even more external um, uh, interests in the region. Again, with as a uh, as a uh, uh, historian and a, a, a uh, scholar of, of, of Chinese uh, foreign policy and in history, I think I always have to bring in China to everything because 
the Belt and Road Initiative, I think, is playing such a huge role in the world that I could see the rebuilding of Syria, an excellent opportunity for, if not Russia, China to sweep in and try to gain some foreign policy in the region because China is really trying to become a more um, dominant power in the realm of foreign policy because historically they've been rather more isolationist. Mm -hmm. But um, in the last 20 years, they've really stepped up their game to try to fill in some of the vacuum. And looking at um, uh, China... uh, building uh syria up like they've done a lot of projects with africa and and and, and south uh, asia it would not surprise me if that well happened. i mean asia uh, sorry china that, that gets into broader security questions in the yeah. united states and um weakening of american power uh, allows for other um other actors to impose mm-hmm. um you know their values and their morals and their interests on the mm-hmm. rest of the world and um, China has very much worked within the very inter- inter- within the institutions and also mm-hmm. apart from the institutions mm-hmm. that the United States has created um, in its own image after World War II and um, kind of created this new liberal this liberal world order. And China is standing in stark contrast to that. They are the antithesis to it. Um, you know, they're they're not a democracy. And, yeah. and getting back to NATO, you know, NATO doesn't require that its member states be a democracy, but in their charter talks about free institutions mm-hmm. being paramount to. Um, to the you know the ties that bind these members yeah. together and uh, with Turkey and especially with under Erdogan mm. clamping down on its on free press, um, mm. making the political structure uh, political system much more authoritarian mm. um, than it was you know before his uh, her ascent to power. So um, I can very much see you know China being another actor in mm. this region especially on with the need for development. That's where mm. China kind of gets these countries. It gets the leverage. Gets the leverage on them is saying we'll we'll bankroll, um, we'll at least give you loans to build up your the much needed infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and then they become a puppet for China. A, a puppet, or that you know they they become just economically so dependent on upon China that they they have to they do what they end up trapping say. themselves. Yeah. And it's very much a neo colonial it is style. Um, a very neo-colonial yeah. style uh, strategy. By the, the biggest by the one you can see is is with like Sri Lanka and and the capturing of the port that they built that the Chinese built for them, um, pretty recently because the Sri Lankans couldn't pay back the debt that it, it cost to build the port. Um, but uh, moving more back towards Syria, I just think it's really important to see that the leaving of the Kurds um, by the U.S. is also just kind of a a moral question. Like, should we leave those that we called our allies for people who may no longer want to be our allies? Well, it, I think it brings up a moral question of how we yeah. see ourselves, right? The United yeah. States is, has projected itself on the international stage as a um, as a moral power, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that is um, America, the United States for most for much of this current era, modern era has really done something that great powers in the past haven't been able to do. And that's mm. harness a tremendous amount of what's called in international relations, soft power. Yeah. That's the ability to get others to do something that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise do without the threat of the use of force. Yeah. And that's incredibly been important for the United States to both seek its own, its own self-interests, but to stabilize the world mm. um, for more of the greater good uh, more broadly. And our reputation keeps taking these hits. Right. Mm. And I think American power is still, respected around the world and I, i'm not i'm not saying that the united states is taking such a step back that we we're going to be completely um off the international stage yeah but it hurts our ability to act unilaterally 
and maneuver in these really sticky situations that when we were afforded by other nations saying the United States is mostly seen as a force for good, when we're not seen that way anymore, how much more expensive mm-hmm. is it going to be us for us to operate in these regions mm-hmm. going forward when we don't have a basis of allies that we can call upon at a moment's notice to come do our bidding, like fighting the rise of ISIS. And it's also hard for the U.S. to get back into um, the saddle of foreign policy in Syria if it pulls itself out and then Russia or China or whoever becomes the main um, uh, negotiator at the table. I mean, it, exactly. it just makes it more difficult. In the makes, end. It, makes it much more difficult. And um, it, it's, it is concerning um it's concerning to me to see the United States pull back from these from these uh, responsibilities and pull back from yeah. its its commitments because are we we have then because then we have to ask ourselves are we comfortable with China being the kingmaker or Russia being um, the you know the hegemon of 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 these areas of the world are we okay with Russian values with Chinese with you know Chinese authoritarian values being um, at the forefront of international relations. Or, or in so is that something we're comfortable with? I think that's something that the United States has to ask itself: is as we pull back, there are ramifications for for that act, for those yeah. actions. I agree. Um, do you have anything else you want to bring up about Syria and its future trajectories, or are you uh, feeling like? Well, I think that Syria will begin to stabilize. Yeah. Um, I think that's a positive out of this. Regardless, I mean, I, I suppose of of uh, who ends up being mm-hmm. the more um, you know the the more broad the the greater power, whether it's the United States, Russia, Turkey. Because we have to worry about the Syrians. I mean, not not the government itself, but the people. Because, I mean, they're the ones who suffered the most. Um, the Assad, the Assad yeah. regime will is, is going to hold on. Yeah. I mean, that just seems to be the way it's, it's, as it's of going. Right now. As of right now, the, the Assad regime seems to be in place because the, the they're allied with the, Russian, with the Russians, um, and they're not going to topple that regime. Assad, the Assads, because they're also somewhat Shia and have supported Shia Muslims within Syria, which is a minority group, as we've talked about, that also um, gains support from Iran, which is a predominantly Shia um, the majority majority Shia, Shia countries. So uh, there's major regional players who have a um, an interest in keeping the Assad regime in place. Yeah. The Arab Spring rebels um, who have been fighting for for their own in, for their own independence. The Kurds um, they're going to fall back into this conglomerate of a nation state. Mm-hmm. I think that it's going to be a return to the status quo. Which yeah. is that a good thing? I think there's going to be less bloodshed, but there's still going to be a lot of people living under authoritarian mm-hmm. authoritarian regime. A minor, minority groups being um, living under the thumb of a dictator. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a really happy ending. And uh, also it just makes it harder for, I think, again, the Kurds who, I mean, put so much of their, uh, their stake on the line to try and essentially build a state that they thought would eventually be theirs if, if the U.S. stick with them and, and one where they could have their own say in the region and ultimately be crushed. I mean, that also just things loses another important ally in the region because if we ever have a situation where we need their help again, are they going to come to our aid? And honestly, if I were the Kurds, I'd really question if I would. It would be difficult um, to, because you know, the the estimates are at about 11 million, not 11 million, 11,000 Kurds have died. Uh, have died fighting ISIS on backed by the United States. Yeah. Um, and would they have fought ISIS, whether the United States had been there or not? I mean, they probably had to, and their their, yeah. their home lives and their their land was at stake. Yeah. You know, the the places where they live was at was under threat by ISIS. Mm. So, um, the United States backed them. So it wasn't like they went into this fighting solely because, well, not only because, solely because the United States pushed them to do it or asked them to do it, but um, they definitely put themselves in a precarious situation with Turkey and the Assad regime. That after ISIS has fallen. 
they're left looking they're left on the outside looking in on whatever government ends up being formed in the whatever the new status quo ends up being they're on the outside looking in because they're seen as being allied with the united mm, states i agree yeah no i agree unfortunately syria like i said is the ultimate jenga and really one piece being pulled from it really can bring the entire thing toppling down and and maybe just because i love that game but i just have a feeling it's not gonna be as easy to put it back together once the war is all said and done no, because it wasn't particularly put well together to begin with. As we, as we so talk about, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great way to great place to end it on. Um, Matt, thank you for joining me. Yeah, and I look for forward me. to doing some episodes in the in the future. Yeah. I think next month, um, I know you're you're really uh, excited about China. So yeah, maybe I would we really can like that. Uh, I think we can talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. That which would be a blast. I think is one of the the biggest threats to American security. So in other words, you're handing this show over to me <laughs> so I can just spend an hour talking. <laughs> well, about I myself, I myself <laughs> am, am really interested in the in that uh, in that particular topic. So yeah, we'll talk about the, the rise of China and the specifically looking at the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, we'd like to thank you guys for listening. Um, this is to the Republic. I'm Jake and I'm Matt. Have a great rest of your month. KXRW is brought to you by the generous support from our friends at New Vansterdam. They are the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. You can visit at newvansterdam.com for more information regarding their specials and discount days like CBD Sunday and Munchie Monday. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. Support for KXRW comes from David's Trains, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains from the late 1800s to the 1960s. For appraisal, you can call him at 360-576-1602. That's 360-576-1602. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine.